All right, we'll continue. We're in the book of Exodus and the story of the ten plagues. And uh, last time we covered the plagues of uh, lice or gnats, flies, livestock disease, and the boils and sores. So we covered the... um, the uh, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth plagues. So we're going to pick up where we left off. So God sends a plague. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he doesn't let the people go. Um, so we're now continuing with the seventh plague, which is known as the plague of hail. Let's read from Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 13. <clears throat> Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go so they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues into your very heart and on your servants and your people, that you may know there is not another such as I in the earth. For now I will stretch forth my hand and smite you and kill your people, and you'll be cut off from the earth. But for this very reason you were preserved, that I might display in you my strength, and my name might be declared in all the earth. As yet you exalt yourself against my people, and you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow at this time I'll cause a very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore hurry now and gather your cattle and all you have in your fields. For the hail shall come down on every man and animal found in the fields, and whatever is not brought home shall die. Thus he who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh gathered his cattle into the houses, but he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven. There shall be hail in all the land of Egypt, both on man and cattle on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. So Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. Thus the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. This hail and the fire mingled with it were so very heavy there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And throughout the whole land of Egypt it struck both man and cattle and every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called from Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are ungodly. Therefore pray for me to the Lord and let him cause the thunderings of God to cease and the hail and fire. For I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail and rain that you may know the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know you will not fear the Lord. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was ripe and the flax was beginning to seed. But as for the wheat and the rye, they were not struck, for they were late crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. Thus, when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, the thunder ceased, he sinned yet more. He hardened his heart 
and the heart of his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord said to Moses. Amen. So um, basic storyline here. Moses goes before Pharaoh, warns him because he continues to refuse to let the people go. The, The Hebrews go. The Lord's about to send yet another plague on Egypt. And the following day, there'll be a hailstorm unlike any before seen in Egypt, and it will kill all the people and livestock that are in the open fields. Moses warns the Egyptians, bring your people and your livestock out of the fields or they'll all die in the storm. And uh, two reactions. Those among Pharaoh... The servants of Pharaoh among the Egyptians who fear the Lord bring their servants and livestock into the houses, but those who don't fear the Lord leave their servants and livestock in the fields. Moses stretches out his hands, holding up his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sends hail, thunder, and thunder mixed with fire. Uh, However, the hailstorm doesn't strike the land of Goshen, the area of Egypt where the Israelites were living. And then finally, Pharaoh calls for Moses, promises to let the Hebrews go. Moses raises hands to heaven. The storm ceases. However, Pharaoh hardens his heart again and refuses to let Israel go. A few things... I mean, each of the the plagues, each of the plague stories has some elements that are similar to the other plagues, but then there's some things that are different. I want to focus on the things that are new and different here. Uh, One of the things that I noticed right off is it says in Exodus 9.34, this is the second time that it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says, actually says he, referring to Pharaoh, sinned yet more and hardened his heart. So the whole idea... We've talked about this before, that uh, the Calvinists teach that, based on Romans chapter 9, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says here, clearly, Pharaoh sinned and hardened his heart again. This is the second time. It also says, similar in in, in Exodus chapter 8, so two places in here where it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So the whole idea that uh, uh, we're completely corrupt and that God will uh, push us around our, our, our emotions and feelings like pawns that we have no free will. Uh, clearly, it's not said here that Pharaoh is guilty for his own sin. And we talked about it in the uh, Romans 4 lesson, God will harden his heart, uh, how the early Christians understood that. So that's, that's one thing I noticed right here. Is this another place where it says Pharaoh hardens his heart? The other thing was Pharaoh here for the first time shows at least on the surface, remarkable signs of humility towards the Lord. Think about this. In verses 27 and 28, it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. My people and I are ungodly. Therefore, pray for me to the Lord. Let him cause the thunderings of God to cease and the hail and fire. I will let you go you shall stay no longer. So uh, uh, unlike the time with the plague of the flies, there's no attempt to bargain with Moses or God or put conditions on here. He just says, I'm, I'm guilty. It's, it's like it's unconditional surrender. Pharaoh seems to throw up the white flag. He says, I have sinned, 
The Lord is righteous. My people and I are ungodly. He says he's acknowledging that they're wicked. And then Moses uh, is asked by Pharaoh to pray for Pharaoh and to remove the curse of this plague. So this is, this is new. There's a progression here, and here uh, Pharaoh seems to be on the ropes. Um, so that's something new here. And then the other thing that's new about this plague is most of the plagues just, just happen. This plague, you get a warning before it comes. So the people are warned this plague is coming and you can actually do something about it to impact your outcome. Bring your people and your livestock into your houses or barns or whatever and uh, get, them out of, get them out of the weather here. So, so they're, they're given an opportunity to do something about their outcome that they can repent. And it says that those who feared the Lord, the Egyptians who feared the Lord, rushed out to pull their servants and livestock indoors. And uh, so this was the first plague, I think, that actually killed people, too. So people die in this plague, but the ones who die are the ones, the people who, aren't, aren't, who don't fear God and aren't obeying what he says. So that, that was different, I noticed. The other thing was that there are Egyptians here who fear the Lord and who heed his warnings and do something about it, which is interesting. It's not that the it's not that all the Jews are the good guys and all the Egyptians are the bad guys. There are some God-fearing people here. I mean, this to me is another similarity between Moses and Jesus, is that one of the things that uh, people, the Jews were uncomfortable with, is that Jesus was reaching out to Gentiles, and that there were there were non-Jewish people, there were Gentiles who saw the signs that Jesus did and feared God and basically turned themselves in. So that he was he was while he's ministering primarily to the Jews, that there are Gentiles who fear God and respond as well. I mean, think about the Samaritan woman in John chapter four and all the people of her village who respond to Jesus, or the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, who wants his servant to be healed, or the famous Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. This is one of Allison's favorites, that she uh, she longs for the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then, uh, you know, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, and it says he was a, Peter doesn't want to go into his house because he's a dirty Gentile, and God reveals to him. He's, he's a God-fearing Gentile, and God reveals that he's acceptable in, in Acts chapter 10. So uh, this is another parallel. As you see the God-fearing Gentiles responding to the signs done by the great Jewish prophet. Now another thing. Uh, I was for many years in a church where the preaching was all done out of the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible. So I had read this story many times in the NIV. And then when uh, Alice and I went to Albania, their, uh, the Bible translation that they use in Albania, the Albanian translation was based on, very similar to the King James Version. So I switched over to the New King James so that what I was reading would be more similar to what, what they were reading there. And this is one of the thing, first things I noticed was a difference was in the NIV, 
if for anybody on the line who happens to be reading out of the NIV. In the NIV, it says that lightning was mixed with the hail, whereas in the New King James, it says it's fire that's mixed with the hail. Now, that's a different thing. Having a hailstorm with lightning and thunder is okay. That's unusual, but that does occur. Having a hailstorm where there's fire coming down mixed in with the hail, that's totally not, that doesn't happen. Okay, that's a, that's a complete miracle. That's a complete violation of the laws of nature. So I was kind of curious as to um, the translation here about lightning versus fire. There are a very few, the NIV is one of the only translations that translates it as lightning. I think the message does, that's a paraphrase, that's not much of a translation anyway. And a few of the Catholic Bibles, which are uh, like the uh, Jerusalem Bible, the, the New American Bible, which is not the same as New American Standard, they, they will use the, the expression lightning. Uh, but it seemed that almost all of the translations that are out there, King James, New King James, New American Standard, uh, ESV, Revised Standard, almost all the translations render it fire. And you know, I'm reading from the Orthodox Study Bible, which is based on the Septuagint, and there the word clearly is fire. There's no ambiguity whatsoever. This is the same word that a little later on in chapter 12, it says, when you eat the lamb... Don't eat the meat raw, eat meat roasted over the fire. So this is the same exact word. So you're not roasting it over lightning. You're right. So this, is a, this is fire coming out of the sky. So, and uh, this, is the, this is the Old Testament version, the Septuagint, that the, the, the apostles and Jesus are quoting from. So this is, they, when, they would understand this is fire as well. So, and you might think, well, what difference does it make if it's fire, if it's lightning? It burns stuff up. Well, fire, I get a different sense with fire coming out of the sky. This is, this is much more scary to me. This is much more the, the hand of God. And I want to read, with that in mind, uh, Wisdom of Solomon. I want to read what it says in uh, chapter 16 there. Let's, let's uh, turn there if you have a Bible that has <laughs> Wisdom of Solomon in it. It's, it was in the... Uh, original King James Version up until the 1800s, and is in the Catholic and Orthodox uh, Bible Old Testaments as well. So Wisdom of Solomon chapter 16, we've quoted from that a few times because it actually talks quite a bit about the plagues. Um, Exodus, I'm sorry, Wisdom of Solomon chapter 16, I'm going to read starting in verse 15. It says, the writer says, To escape from your hand is impossible, for the ungodly who refused to know you were flogged by the strength of your arm. They were pursued by rains, hail, and thunderstorms, and consumed by fire. For the fire, very contrary to expectation, was more effective in the water, which extinguishes everything. For the world is a defender of the righteous. For at one time, the flame was subdued that it might not burn up the creatures sent against the ungodly. But seeing this, they might know that they were struck by the judgment of God. And at another time, even underwater, the flame burned more intensely than fire to destroy the harvest of the unrighteous land. And then down in verse 22, <laughs> snow and ice endured fire without melting. So they might know 
That fire destroyed the harvest of their enemies. The fire that burned in the hail and flashed like lightning in the rain. So, um, and Wisdom of Solomon, the writer clearly understood this was fire also. They're, they, the pictures, they're flames of fire that are interspersed with, with the hail and water. And normally, fire and water are kind of opposites. You use water to put out a fire. So, you know, how, how, did, how does this work? Um, and it says that actually the fire became, in the midst of the water and the hail, the fire became even more effective somehow in burning up the harvest of the land. Meanwhile, hail, you think when it gets warm enough for fire, the hail would melt. But it says, no, the hail didn't melt even though it was in the midst of the fire. And this revealed that it was the judgment of God in destroying an unrighteous land because this this... Fire, you don't get fire and ice together in the same place. It, uh, it puts out the fire or it melts the ice. Um, let's move on to the, the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. This is a particularly terrifying plague. <clears throat> I was doing some reading about locusts, and uh, uh, I'll share with you a, a few things I learned here, but this is uh, uh, locusts, uh, plague of locusts is uh, horrifying. Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 to 20. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that these signs may come upon them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your children and your children's children in how many things I mocked the Egyptians, and my wonders I wrought among them. And you shall know I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so they may serve me. Or else if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will will bring an abundance of locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth. So no one will be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of what's left of the land's abundance, which remains to you from the hail." And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor their forefathers saw since the day they were on earth to this day. So Moses turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so they may serve their God. Do you not yet know Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But who are the ones going? Moses replied, We'll go with our young and old, with our sons and daughters, with our sheep and oxen, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, Let the Lord be with you, When I let you and your little ones go, but not your belongings, for evil lies before you. Not so, but let the men go and serve God, for that is what you desired. Then they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt, and let the locusts come upon the land of Egypt, and eat every herb of the land, everything the hail left. 
So Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord brought a south wind on the land all that day and night. When it was morning, the south wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in very great abundance on all the territory of Egypt. Previously, there were no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the land, and the land was wasted. They ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees left by the hail. There remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called from Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore pardon my sin yet this time and pray to the Lord your God that he take away from me this death. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to God. Then the Lord brought in from the opposite direction a strong wind from the sea, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. So summary storyline here. Moses and Aaron warned Pharaoh that if he doesn't let the people go, he's going to send another terrible plague. And he says, this plague of locusts will be unlike anything as Egypt has ever seen before. After Moses departs, Pharaoh's servants appeal to Pharaoh. So Moses leaves, the servants say, look, don't you realize Egypt is destroyed? By everything that's happened so far, they said, just give the guy what he wants. We're we're done here. So Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron back in. And Pharaoh tries to bargain with Moses. He's playing, let's make a deal again. So Pharaoh asks, he says, okay, now who exactly are you planning to take with you? And Moses says, well, we're taking everybody. We're taking the old, the young, the men, the women. And we're taking all of our livestock and possessions, too. We're taking everybody and everything with us. And Pharaoh says uh, he's willing to let the men go, meaning the males, but not the women and children and not the livestock and possessions. Well, actually, I'm not sure about the children, but definitely they talking about the males, the, the, uh, uh, you know, when we say men in English, you don't know if it's talking about males or all people, but this, the word that's used there is referring to the males. So... Uh, He'll let the males go, but not the women, and uh, without the possessions. So this to Moses and the Lord is no deal. So uh, Moses and Aaron are driven out again. The the request is rejected. Uh, Moses stretches out his hand and brings a wind from the south. So it's coming in from Upper Egypt. It's coming in from the rest of Africa. And the wind comes in from the south all day and night. And the next morning, it brings a vast plague of locusts that covers the land. Uh, The locusts eat everything. Pharaoh admits that he sinned against God and Moses. He asks Moses to pray to end the plague. Moses complies. The Lord sends another wind going in a different direction, carries the locusts into the Red Sea. Not a single locust is left in Egypt. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart again, his heart is hardened, and he refused to let the people go. So, 
Now, living in New England, I haven't run into too many locusts in, in the recent recent past here, So, um, and I've never been to Africa, so I, I've never seen locusts, I've never seen a locust plague, so I wanted to do a little bit of digging and just learn more about locusts, have more of a feel of what this plague was like. So I learned a few things about locusts. Here's some fun facts about locusts. They're in the same family, as probably most of you knew, they're in the same family as grasshoppers, and they look similar. So they're, they're, they're like basically like, like big grasshoppers. They're different strains, different types of locusts, but they're the same family as grasshoppers. They have an extraordinary ability to survive in difficult environments. They live in about 60 countries today, and mostly in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. So a lot of people think, Oh, locusts, that's something that happened a long time ago. It's a good thing we don't have locust plagues anymore. But actually, and the other thing is, it's a good thing we don't have them here in North America. Actually, there was a significant plague of locusts in the 1800s in North America in the U.S. and Canada. And um, uh, for some reason, they died off and have not been seen in North America since that time. Thank God. It appears that the locusts survive in low numbers in arid conditions, and then when environmental conditions get right and the population builds up, they morph into these different-looking creatures that are more voracious and aggressive. And uh, in this aggressive phase, a locust is basically an eating machine. So they eat their own body weight every single day. If a plague of locusts descends on a field in the morning, there's nothing left by the middle of the day. They eat absolutely everything in sight. They're a voracious appetite. Now, under the right environmental conditions, these creatures can multiply. Now, multiply, you think double or triple. Well, in six months, they can multiply to 400 to 500 times their number. So... uh, there, the, the, you can see enormous, when the, when the c- climate conditions are right, you see enormous changes in population coming in very, very short time. The other thing that's kind of strange is they can, they can fly up to about 5,000 feet altitude in the air. Therefore, they can be carried by upper altitude winds over great distances. There was one event where uh, uh, I think uh, in a previous century, the, their, uh, a plague from Africa, the, the locusts blew all the way into Britain. So they can go great distances because they can take advantage of, of high currents in the air. And the locusts are still very much a problem today. There was a press release about a month or two ago from Save the Children regarding a current plague of locusts in East Africa. I'm going to read from it. It says, The worst plague of desert locusts in a generation is ravaging crops and other vegetation across the Horn of Africa, Africa, with Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia battling to contain the escalating crisis. The outbreaks in Ethiopia and Somalia are the worst in 25 years, and in Kenya the worst in 75 years. Swarms as large as about 930 square miles, or or more than three times the size of New York City, have been seen in northeast Kenya, 
with the locusts moving southward towards South Sudan and eastward towards Uganda, a swarm of this size, which can contain up to 192 billion locusts, is estimated to eat in one day the same as 90 million people. Okay, how'd you like to have them over for dinner? So this is, uh, this is what's plaguing North Africa right now. And it says that the plague that was sent on Egypt was unlike any that had been before or after. A few things, so this just gives me a little more of a sober sense of what a plague of locusts might be like. And that these, these animals are still around today and uh, threatening people in Africa and Asia and the Middle East. Uh, some things to note that I noticed about this particular plague. One of the, the things that I noticed, I grew up in a family where, um, I don't know how to put this diplomatically, uh, sportsmanship was, was bad, bad sportsmanship. We were, we were taught in my family to be bad Bad winners and bad losers both. So if you win, you would gloat and you'd mock the other people. And if you lose, you know, you 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 claim the other person cheated or things like that. So this was great sport in my family growing up. And and Allison was horrified when she got to first before we got married, spending time with me and my family and seeing how we behaved around each other, the way we would trash talk and mock one another. So maybe you're from a family that uh, has a similar tradition, but I, I, I've got I've to work on that. I mean, I need to repent of that, not work on that, okay? So, so I noticed this. It says that God was mocking the Egyptians. And I, I checked the word out. Is that right? This isn't what it says in the, the Septuagint. It says he mocked the Egyptians. So, and, and it is exactly what the word means, that he mocked them. It's the same word where it talks about Jesus in the New Testament being mocked. Uh, when he was by the, by his enemies, and when he was on the cross, and when he was when he, before he went to the cross. So, or when it says that the man who built in, in, in Luke fourteen, the man who started building a house and didn't have enough to finish it, he's mocked by the other people. So he's basically he's ridiculed. That's the idea. So, the whole idea of God mocking or ridiculing other people, it got my attention. But I thought. This, this, this seems a little strange to me to be thinking about God as mocking other people, but I want to see God for how he is and how he reveals himself in the scriptures, not, not, because I think of mocking as like trash talking prior to a, a sporting event. So, however, the, the whole idea of God mocking his enemies is actually found a few places in Scripture. That doesn't, I mean, I'm, I'm not supposed to be mocking other people. God judges and God mocks, but that's not my position to do either one of those things. Uh, but uh, uh, the whole idea of God mocking, it, it talks about, in, in Proverbs chapter 2, it talks about wisdom, the personification of wisdom, the people who reject wisdom and who get involved in all kinds of ungodly behavior says that wisdom is going to mock them. Wisdom is going to be ridiculing them when they when their the time of their fall comes because they love wickedness and they wouldn't listen. In Psalm two, it says that the Lord would that those who conspire against the Lord and His Christ who don't want Him to rule over them, it says that the Lord will mock the rulers of the world. So uh, uh, those who, those who reject Christ would be mocked by God. So. Uh, there's definitely that idea. And also I think about 
what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, it's not always that the word mock appears, but sometimes the whole concept of God, God mocking somebody or something comes out in Scripture. And in 1 Corinthians 15 is the, is the passage about the resurrection of the dead. And it says in verse 26 that Christ will reign until he's put all things under his feet, and the last enemy to be put under his feet will be death. And then at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, think about this. It says, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and the mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? That's uh, quoting from Hosea chapter 13. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that's the the, the close of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So, the whole idea is that God mocking his enemies, he, he will mock those who reject Christ. He'll mock those who don't seek wisdom and get involved in wickedness. And even at the end, death itself will be mocked by, by God and by us, is that death will have no victory over us. Death will be vanquished, that the grave will be empty in the end. So while God... And, and Christ and the people of God may be mocked and rejected for a time, the time is coming when all the enemies of God and even death itself will be mocked. So this whole idea of God mocking the Egyptians, actually, to me, it, it fits in with, with, with God. God can do that. I think here also about the description of Egypt after the locusts had ravaged the land. It says, There remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. That's Exodus 10, 15. So thinking about what locusts do and what they're like and how they eat, I mean, I can completely see that, that it would cause enormous devastation of whatever was left over from the previous plagues would be, would be wasted. Anything that was green was completely gone by the end of that. Let's, I want to take a look at the ninth plague. Uh, it's a short passage at the end of chapter 10. It talks about the ninth plague. It said, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, and let there be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. No one saw his brother for three days. Nor did anyone rise from his bed for three days. But all the children of Egypt had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord your God. Only let your sheep and oxen be kept back. Let your belongings also go with you. But Moses said, No, but you must give us whole burnt offerings and sacrifices that we may, be sacri- that, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Thus our cattle shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know in what manner we shall serve the Lord our God until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, 
Depart from me. Take heed to yourself that you see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, you've spoken well. I will never see your face again. So things are getting, it's an escalating. Things are getting more and more intense here. So this is the, the, the ninth plague is three days of darkness. And it's so bad that the Egyptians don't even get out of bed for three days. The three days spent in bed. And it says no one saw his brother for three days. However, there was light in all the dwellings of the Israelites. Pharaoh is willing to let the people go with their belongings, but not with their livestock. Maybe he's afraid they're going to leave and not come back. I don't know. But he says, no, you have to leave your livestock here. Moses says we have to take all our livestock because we have to offer some of our livestock as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And until we get there, we don't know which ones. God will tell us what to do. He said we have to bring all of our livestock with us. We don't know which ones we need. So Pharaoh rejects Moses' request that they leave with all their livestock. And Pharaoh says, faithfully, you will never see my face again. In the day you see my face, you will die. Moses agrees. And he says, what you've said is good. You'll never see my face again. So I'm left with a few questions here. Imagine that... The sun didn't come out for three days. It's dark for three days. It's just this like night for three days. Imagine that. Would you stay in bed for three days? Would you stay in bed for three days? I don't think I would. I don't think I could do that. You get bored being in bed all the time. So what would you do? If, 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 if all the lights were out and it was dark outside for three days, what would you do? Well, you'd, you'd, get, a, you'd get a lamp out. And you get up after a while and wander around the house and find something to eat or whatever. You, you wouldn't stay in bed for three days. You're not sick. Why did people stay in bed for three days? Why wouldn't they just at least light a lamp and get up and move around the house and talk to each other or do something like that? I understand it's dark, but why would they do that? So, well, first of all, this was an unusual darkness. This wasn't your typical darkness. It says this was a darkness that could be felt, okay? What does that mean? A darkness that's so thick you can feel it. And it says no one could even see his brother. So you get out of bed, you light a lamp, and you still can't see anybody. So this darkness appears to be so thick that it couldn't even be penetrated with the light of a lamp. Everybody has lamps in their houses. They didn't have electricity, but they had lamps. So you still, nobody could see anybody else in the house even with a light. In Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 17 and 18, it talks about this darkness. This was a really creepy darkness. And I want to read that. Uh, let's, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 17, verse 1. So give you, give you a, a picture for what this darkness was like and what it was like for the Egyptians under this darkness. It's not your average darkness. So I want you to get a feel of what the experience was like for the Egyptians 
during this time, this three days of darkness, what it was like for them. Wisdom of Solomon 17, verse 1. Great are your judgments and hard to explain. Therefore, ignorant souls have gone astray. For when lawless men thought they exercised power over your holy nation, they themselves were prisoners of darkness and long night, shut in under their roofs, exiles from eternal providence. For when they thought they escaped notice, when their secret sins behind a curtain of forgetfulness, they were scattered and in a terrible state of shock and thrown into confusion by apparitions. For not even the inmost part of the house that held them protected them from fear. But troubling noises sounded all around them and gloomy apparitions with downward, downcast faces appeared to them. No force of fire had the strength to give them light. Nor did the very bright lights of the stars tarry to illuminate that hateful night. Now a self-acting fire full of fear alone shone through to them. But they were greatly terrified when that apparition was not perceived, so they considered the things they were seeing to be for worse. The delusions of their magic were ineffective, and so was the ignorant certainty of the pretense to have insight. For those who promised to drive away the fears and troubles of a sick soul were themselves sick with an absurd timidity. For even if nothing dreadful frightened them, yet scared by the passing of beasts and hissing of serpents, they perished full of fear, even refusing to look at the air, which could not be avoided. For evil is a cowardly thing, and condemned by its own witness, and tormented by conscience, it always welcomes things full of trouble. For fear is nothing but the betrayal of the assistance that comes from reasoning, and the expectation from within that considers itself to be weaker. than ignorance of the cause, which supplies the torment. But they slept the same sleep throughout the night, which was actually powerless, and which assaulted them from the inmost parts of a powerless Hades. They were driven by the monsters of apparitions, and were paralyzed by the betrayal of their soul. For sudden and unexpected fear was poured out on them, and then whoever was there fell down, and thus was kept shut up in a prison not made of iron. For whether someone was a farmer, or a shepherd, or a worker who labored in the wilderness, he was overtaken by force and endured inescapable punishment. For all were bound with one chain of darkness. Whether there came a whistling sound, or a musical sound of birds in wide spreading branches, or the motion of violently rushing water, or the hard crashing of rocks thrown down, or unseen running of leaping animals, or the roar of fierce wild animals, or an echo reflected from the hollow of mountains. It paralyzed them with terror, for the whole world was illumined with bright light and embraced unhindered works, while over those men alone heavy night was spread. An image of darkness was about to receive them, but they were heavier than darkness to themselves. But for your holy ones, there was a very great light. Their enemies heard their voice, but did not see their form. And they considered them blessed because they had also not suffered. For your holy ones did not harm those who previously wronged them. So they were thankful 
and begged for grace. For being at variance with them, therefore you provided a flaming pillar of fire as a guide for their unknown journey and a harmless sun for their glorious exile. For their enemies deserve to be deprived of light and imprisoned in darkness. Those who imprison your children, through whom the incorruptible light of the law was to be given to the world. So, says the Egyptians who considered themselves to be rulers over Israel... They became prisoners in, in their own homes, prisoners in darkness in their own homes. And the, the picture here was they heard terrifying sounds during this time of darkness, but they could see nothing and no fire could give them light. Why did they not get out of their beds? Because they were scared to death by everything that happened, by the fact that they couldn't see anything and also that they were hearing noises but couldn't see anything. They were scared. They stayed in bed for three days because they were terrified. And even in their sleep, they were terrified by nightmares, by sounds when they were awake and by nightmares when they were asleep. So they had no peace whatsoever. However, during this time that the Egyptians suffered under darkness, the the God's people had full light. They could see and... Uh, they they were uh, they were they could see during this period of time. Then later on, God would provide a pillar of light in the pillar of fire to guide them on the way that they should go. So, significance of this plague to me, there's there's a lot here. God's people are in light, whereas Pharaoh's people in the kingdom of darkness or in a darkness that is so thick that it can't be that it can be felt that's a terrifying darkness and they can't see anything that, that it's impossible for light to penetrate the darkness that's how thick it is i remember when we would study the bible with people who were not christians we we'd have a study that was called light and darkness so we talk about the light and we talk about the darkness and say all right you're in the darkness now and you need to come in the light, and this is what you need to do. Well, this was the original light and darkness study, where he put, he locked Egypt into darkness, terrifying darkness that no light could penetrate, and, uh, and, and kept God's people in light as a foreshadowing of that. There are so many passages in the New Testament that use this imagery of light and darkness, but I think it goes right back to the story here. Think I think of a few. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 16. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And John, throughout the Gospel of John, we went through that uh, last year. Uh, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. He who does the truth comes into the light that his deeds may be clearly seen they've been done by God. So Jesus uses this light and darkness imagery that he is the light that comes into a dark world and people either come into the light or they, they go back into the darkness in John 3, 19 to 21. John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Uh, John 12, 46, he says, I come as a light in the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. We have an opportunity to get out of the darkness in following Jesus. Uh, I, I remember 
This is a passage we we discuss many times in Acts 26 when Paul is recounting the commission that Jesus gave to him. He says Jesus told him uh, on the road to Damascus. He's recounting he's recounting the story. He says. I'm now sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, do not be yoked to get together with unbelievers. He says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? You were in the light, they're in the darkness. Ephesians 5, Paul says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And he goes on to explain what that's all about. In 1 Thessalonians 5, starting at verse 5, You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of night or darkness. And then, this is the passage we use when we're setting light and darkness of people. I'll close that. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So this is a, a beautiful image, a beautiful picture here, that, that it's the, the contrast between light and darkness. Now, some of you it may have occurred to some of you here. Eusebius said in the uh, in proof of the gospel, book three, he says uh, Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen to nineteen that said that in the future God would send a prophet like Moses. And so, so, so Eusebius says that uh, so there'd be similar signs to Moses. Jesus would do things that were similar to the miracles of Moses, but even greater. We saw this in the first plague, first public miraculous sign, is the uh, Moses turns the water to blood, Jesus turns the water to wine. So that's an obvious similarity. The last plague, the tenth plague, is the Passover. So, you know, the the, the Passover lamb is slain at twilight, the, the lamb without defect, the blood over the door. That's obviously a foreshadowing of Jesus, the Passover lamb. So you have the, the first the first plague is the beginning of Jesus' signs. The last plague is the last of his signs, is his death on the cross. Well, what's the second to the last one? What's the second to the last? Second to the last sign is darkness. What was the last miracle before Jesus died on the cross? Darkness came over the land for three hours. Now, why did, why did God, in the story of Moses, why was darkness over the land for three days? Why not one day? Why not four days? Well, it's foreshadowing what, what happened, is that the last miracle before Jesus died on the cross was God would shut the lights off for the whole land. So to me, there's a significance here in the story about uh, the, uh, in, in terms of the, the miraculous signs that this is, showing once again that before the Passover lamb was slain, that God would shut the lights, turn the lights off, and that God would, would cast the land in darkness, showing a distinction between light and darkness, three hours of light and three hours of darkness. Well, 
All right, so we have the tenth plague. We have the ninth plague. What about the eighth plague? Eighth plague is a plague of locusts. Now, did Jesus ever do any miraculous signs with locusts? Light and darkness, yes. Locusts, no. Did Jesus ever do any miraculous signs with any kind of insects at all? No. The only thing, only about locusts I can think of in the New Testament is that John the Baptist would eat locusts. So, you know, uh, I, I, but I don't see any any sign here associated with the locusts. Well, what was the last before the lights were turned out, before darkness came over the land for three hours? What was the last miracle that Jesus did? Think about it. What was the last miracle Jesus did before he went to the cross? Let's turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 14. Now the next day, when they had gone out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went up to see if perhaps he'd find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. And then... Back down to verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Now, ever wonder why Jesus cursed a tree? The tree didn't do anything wrong. Plus, it wasn't even the right time of the year for figs. So why is Jesus getting angry and cursing a tree when it's not the time for it to be producing the figs in the first place. Well, one possibility is because Jesus is the prophet who is just like Moses. And the last plague before the plague of darkness came into the land was Jesus was Moses cursed the plants, all the plants, including the trees. There was nothing green left on the trees. That he sent the plea, did this miraculously by bringing locusts in. Jesus's Second to last miracle before he died on the cross was that he brought a curse to plants. Only Moses had to have insects do the dirty work. Jesus just cursed it directly, and the next thing they come by the next day, and it's all it's all withered up and gone. So uh, that's a possibility. And uh, all right, so we've got the the last. Three miracles here as foreshadowed by Moses. What about the fourth to last miracle, the first one we talked about today, the of, of hail? So uh, Jesus certainly didn't do any miracles by bringing hail down, but Jesus did have power over the weather. I think about the story in Mark chapter 4, the windstorm arose and Jesus rebuked the winds and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the people remarked, the apostles say, Who can this be? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Is that Jesus had power over the weather, just like Moses did. And there's but there's one more possibility. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 49, while Jesus did not bring hailstones down. He did make another interesting comment. He said, I came 
to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. That not only did Moses bring hail on the earth, but he brought fire to burn it up as well. And Moses brought physical fire on the earth, just like Elijah did. But Jesus brings the spiritual fire. He came to bring fire on the earth. And uh, it's a reminder that Jesus follows that up and he says, look, I'm going to divide families, three against two and two against three. I'm going to divide parents and children. I came to bring fire on the earth. Jesus came to bring the truth. He came to call, pray people to repentance. And if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to be preaching the gospel like Jesus did, we're going to be bringing fire as part of the message of calling people to repent, warning people of the judgment to come and speaking the truth. And it's going to it's going to it's going to cause problems. It's going to it's going to, to, to shake things up. Uh, so we'll stop there and we'll continue in the next lesson with the story of the Passover. Amen.